0: Hey, it's great to be with you tonight, the last teaching night before our evening services close and we have an awesome worship night and uh, I'm excited about the worship night because me, Mon, Pastor Clint, who's uh, new to our team, Creative Arts Director, um, we've got some cool things coming next Sunday night, some installations okay, for this room. Uh, we want to encourage you to come along. You will have a really good time. Uh, well, it's good to be back. Uh, and uh, I just want to say welcome and welcome to those who are joining us online tonight. Um, has 1st John been a blessing to you? It? Uh, it's been a blessing to me because uh, as a preacher, I feel uh, amazing. blessed. I came from a smaller church before I came here, and we've got a, an amazing wealth of talent in, in terms of preaching and teaching team here Mon, Michaela, Michael. We've had Pastor Eric, we've had Brittany. Um, I feel blessed that we've got so many uh, great teachers. Anyway, in this short yet profound letter, we come to, uh, I think, the climax of the letter in chapter five where we're going tonight. And uh, I I hope that um, you'll be able to hold on to some of the things that you've been hearing over the last five or six weeks, if you've been here for most of them. I hope that some of this uh, will infuse into what I have to say tonight. And As I warned uh, a bunch of us at the start of this series, uh, there's been some very uh, direct yet simple statements that point out the sharp contrast of a life of faith and a life without Jesus. And I I wanted to remind you tonight just of uh, one or two of those amazing statements. See, John has a this is how it is kind of way of writing, doesn't he? And we saw some of these sentences during this time. He has a way about his words. He gives us no space for what ifs. Oh, but what if I did this? And what if I, he he gives us no space. I want to give you some examples to kick us off tonight, okay, from our uh, challenge through these uh, these weeks. Here's one from chapter three. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. But what if? There's no, there's no mucking around with his words, is there? If you hate your brother or sister, the love of God is not in you. Oh, straight to me. Uh, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You can't mix words with what John's saying here. Here's another one. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person see we've we've been traveling through this book getting these kind of statements that just hit us every time okay and we can't dodge them we can't go around them we can't try and put them to the side why because it's meant to provoke you it's meant to draw something out of you okay knowledge is no good without a bit of action that's what I hope you've heard over this series provoke you to get into action, to create action. This is the purpose of John's wee letter to us. Uh, Yet at the same time, he's laying down as simply as possible the truth of the gospel's claims that Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout this whole letter, you hear it over and over and over again. And we know because of the context which we've explored a little bit that there's a whole bunch going on Uh, in these Gentile churches that he's writing to. A whole bunch of heresy, a whole bunch of people holding on to different things. And he's just trying to clear it all up. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to know who Jesus is. And there's got to be something transformed in who you are when you follow him. But there is something beautiful uh, that John is also doing that we may not see until we dig a little bit. Now, uh, I used this word. It's a big word called recapitulation. Now, some of you are going to go straight ahead. Okay, Ooh, that, that word's way too big. Uh, recapitulation, some of you are already Googling it. Um, it's a word that I want to explain because I see John doing this throughout this book. And uh, I wanted to, um, when I began this series, I almost everyone uh, who said they'd read this before and some of the preachers that I was uh, encouraging to join me on the preaching team said that they discovered that there's just this, this repetitive going over and over the same topics. Jesus, the son of God, love, life. And it got me thinking about how do I explain what recapitulation is because it seems like we're just going around the same tree. How many of you have seen one of these before? Yeah, kids of the 80s who grew up in the 80s like me would know this, you know, this is what we had before we had technology. Mum and dad wanted to keep us busy all afternoon. They bought us a spirograph. Okay? Some kids are like, that looks boring as heck. Uh, give me an Xbox any day. Okay, A spirograph. It's fantastic. But it's going to explain recapitulation to you today. That's right. <laughs> For those math nerds in the room, any math nerds in the room, there's this fantastic... I'm a bit of a math nerd. There's amazing math theory around spirographs. Have a look online. Some of you are like, really? Really? Um, but the whole purpose of a spirograph um, is that you take these little stencils, you put them on a page, and you do the same thing. You go round and round. It looks something like this, okay? You take one of those other cogs, you put it inside the other cog, and you go round and round and round and round. And you use different colored pens. You do all sorts of things. Now, one, of you, one might think, oh, this is so repetitive. But these kinds of beautiful images emerge, okay? So when you use a spirograph, you go, oh, hang on a second. How does that boring thing turn into that thing? Okay, beautiful images. This is what recapitulation is for me. When you're going through scripture and John's just talking about love and it feels like, oh my gosh, if I hear that word again, love, I reckon one of these is the beauty of love. So you're getting more and more of a picture of what love is, what light is, who the son of God is. You could could take one of those images and say, this is faith, this is faith. I'm going around and I'm talking about why love is important and why the action of love is important. This is a picture of recapitulation for you. And see, as we enter these last verses uh, of 1 John, the picture has emerged for us. And and that's one uh, for those who John is writing to, it's one like this. I'm sure that some of them who are listening to it and they're they're sitting just like you are today and you're hearing this and you're like, oh dear, we're gonna get another one on love. This is the picture I hope is emerging after several weeks in John's letter. This beautiful picture of love and light and life. It's become rich, it's become beautiful, it's become complex. It's an artwork of God's heart for his people. That is First John. And so we come to chapter 5 with this now complex, beautiful picture of love and light and life. And John's final words are focused on Jesus' work and eternal life. And so I've titled tonight's talk, Born Again for Eternal Life. To be born again into Jesus and through Jesus for eternal life. We'll get to that in a minute, let me pray. Father, we're just so thankful that as we open your word, you say to us that you will speak, that your Holy Spirit would come, that your heart for your people would be discovered if we are patient and as we allow the Spirit to move in our lives. And so tonight, as we open your word together, I pray, Spirit, that you would speak. For those who may be fearful or may be hearing this for the first time, out there online or here in this room, Lord. I pray, uh, Lord, that you would go beyond my words and speak as if only you can, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's dive straight in. We're going straight to chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 12. We're going to go right through uh, to verse 12, but I'm just going to pick up the first five verses first, and you can read along on the screen if you like. Everyone who believes... That Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. In fact, yeah, sorry, and this command and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone, and it says in some translations everything, born of God, in other translations it says fathered, overcomes the world. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Pretty straight words there, eh? There's no mincing about. There is a few little complex elements which we'll get to in a second. But I want to pause and unpack uh, a couple of these big points that are here. The first is a little tension that I think we need to address here, and that's the idea of God as Father, but then also as Creator, it's pretty hard to think of God as a father and then be in awe of him as creator. There's this kind of tension going on. And I think what happens in our faith is that we try to drop one side of that for the other or pick up the other. So we need to be able to do in our maturity as we grow in our understanding of who God is to hold on to both the things as God as father and the awe of him as creator, the one that, that gathered dust and breathed life into it, that created Human life. And it's not a tension that we need to resolve. I, uh, to imagine God as completely loving Father can possibly run the risk of loo- losing the profound respect of Him and making Him too personal, too approachable, but that's exactly what He is. So you're saying, Rob, there's this, there's this tension going on. Now, I wanted to explain it a little bit, and maybe um, if you have been to Middle Eastern countries, uh, maybe um, Arab Christians would understand this a little bit better, Persian Gulf countries such as Qatar or Saudi Arabia or Iran, these sorts of places. Most of them have sheikhs, they have uh, sultans, they have kings, uh, the king of Saudi Arabia, and they enjoy this absolute power, this ability to do, at the click of a finger, anything within their domain. And many at the command of their voice hold the power of life and death. They can ruin you financially. Uh, There is this limitless power within their domain. However, those living within close proximity to them, they have this great benefaction uh, or they have enemy status. It's kind of this really hard thing. If you work for them, you have this thing if you are one of their children, to become a child, a prince or a princess living in the palace, well, it puts them in this breathtaking place of privilege. You see, when we can reclaim something of the awesomeness of the power of God and giving him the utmost respect, then then his loving kindness takes on this kind of new potency. Me and my wife are watching the the next round of the crown. How many are watching the next round of the crown? Those first couple of parts where Diana rolls onto the scene, and then she she goes into the palace. And the first sort of engagement she goes to, she walks into the room, and she goes to walk towards Charles, and he's like, Mm-mm-mm. and she has to find out which one she has to bow to first, and she has to curtsy, and then you have to go to that one. There's this even if if she is um, going to be uh, brought into the family to to gain something of that inheritance, she needs to understand her place in the midst of that. Uh, You need to bow to the right people. This isn't what it's like in God's kingdom. You see, we walk into the room and he would embrace us as loving father, but he is also still king. That tension doesn't need to be resolved for us. And I think it's an important one for us to, to really wrestle with because actually it makes a big difference to the way we approach God in our prayer life and the way that we practically serve him. The carrying out of his commands in scripture to love and to show his kindness is no burden, but a reflection of his love and the privilege we live from as his children. When we inherit that name, the name above all names, as we engage with Christ in that loving relationship, we come into that space and we are no longer a Diana fumbling about in that space. But then with this tension in mind and partially resolved for some of us, we also gain an understanding that as princes and princesses of the Most High, as father, we are sent as ambassadors and emissaries. And that's something that I've, I've picked up about that. They're going on these trips. They go and represent the crown. And is this conquering, overcoming way that John's talking about here. You are sent as God's children to overcome the world. We will develop that a little bit later together. you sent to be light, to be love, to be truth, to have an active faith that brings to bear on situations God's love that he's put in you and that he's shown towards you as his children. This week, uh, we had a guy called Ben Pierce, who is uh, David Pierce's son on our podcast show. And he reminded me of... Um, something called the proximity problem. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing. He was, uh, we last talked to him just two weeks before George Floyd was murdered and the Black Lives Matter move started. Um, and he, he was talking about the fact that within the American culture, institutional racism is still a thing and how it, it just absolutely tears them up inside. And uh, it was because they'd just become too familiar and it's the problem of proximity. When you're, when you're close to a situation, you understand it. When the situation isn't at your doorstep, you forget about it. Um, and this is why I, I love going to India and, and I love going to some of these third world nations. God brings right up to my face every single problem that happens in that country and says, you know what? You're a part of the solution. You're a part, as, as God's emissary, as God's ambassador, as one who carries the name of the Most High, you are given everything you need to make a difference in those situations. And that's what I love about the stories we're hearing uh, from the YWAM ships and and Mercy ships. This This is a part of someone stepping into that ambassadorship. You see, we can inoculate ourselves from worldly issues by blinkering ourselves from its ills, and many of us do this. If you haven't seen a horse, a racing horse, sometimes they put these things called blinkers on them, and essentially all they're doing, because their eyes are around the side of their head, they're just cutting off their periphery vision, because they get spooked by the things that are out of the side. You see, we blinker ourselves from things to make ourselves feel more comfortable. We blinker ourselves from poverty. We blinker ourselves from problems that are happening in our community that we all can actually play a part in resolving because God has put it in you to be able to do that. We thought, oh, no, I'm not rich enough. I'm not famous enough. I don't have enough. Get off your chuff. That's what what John's calling us to. He's saying, you know, you've got everything you need as followers of Christ. And then he moves on to something else. John moves from who they are as Christ's privileged children into one more picture, and metaphor, Jesus as the Son of God. And if we remember the context of John's letter, he uh, he's going to be bringing this letter to new Christians, many who are first-time believers, who are in a place that's heresy-ridden and there's all these different competing viewpoints about who Jesus is and was he really God and does he does it count? He's got to speak to that to help them step into that. And there's two groups of people in a society they're speaking to. The first one is the Greek believers. And the Greeks believed that Jesus was not fully man. They believed in gods, of course, and Greek mythology and all that kind of stuff is right there for you. But it was one of those things that they said, there's no way that a man could be a God. Even though Augustus Caesars and all these different Caesars that went through Rome, they said there's no way a man could be God. And then they had the Jewish Pharisees on the other side. So this is in the same society that these new believers are in. And they didn't believe that Jesus, uh, sorry, was yeah, didn't believe that Jesus was, was not, that they believed, get it right, Rob? <laughs> they believed that Jesus was not fully God. There's no way that he could be. Because uh, Yahweh, the the Yahweh they understood, was one. He was the only God. There was no iteration of Him. And so John writes these words to the believers. Verse 6. He says this. That's what I should have done before. Okay, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his tes- this testimony. Whoever does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony of God he has given about his Son. Interesting. You see, the Apostle John would have been one of the last eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. He was in his, most scholars would believe that he would be in his 80s, most of those who would have been there at the resurrection. May have passed away by now. He's one of the last eyewitnesses. And this is kind of the last thing he's trying to leave with people. It's like, believe me, I saw Jesus. I understood him to be the Son of God. You need to hold on to this. What is he doing? He's talking about something called incarnational Christology. Come on, Rob. Too many big words tonight, but I'm going to throw a couple of things at you tonight. No, I'm not trying to flex my fancy theological degree here. Uh, It is essential to our ongoing development and faith journey and spiritual maturity for us to grapple with some theology as God's people, okay? So the two words, incarnational Christology, the first one, incarnation is the uh, the central Christian doctrine that the eternal word of God became man in Jesus Christ, who was then truly God and truly man, okay? Okay? That's a core belief that stretches back 2,000 years that the church holds on Okay, And the second here, the aim of Christology is to give an account of the identity and the significance of Jesus Christ, of whom he is, and why he is important. Okay, Two things going on here. This is what John is doing all through his letter about Jesus. He's doing incarnational Christology. And why is it important? Well, I'll give you one quick example from recent history. In 1994, 2,500 people turned up in Minneapolis, and it was from 27 different countries. It was at this thing called the World Council of Churches. And they were there, and this, this group that were running it said, we believe it's time for a second reformation of the church. And you should always be alarmed if someone says that. okay? And what they did was uh, they would begin with some radical theological surgery on the church's belief system. They wanted to develop a new anchor of truth. They wanted to establish a new center point of faith. It wasn't Jesus. It was something they called Sophia. And Sophia was this uh, a feminine look at uh, wisdom. It's the feminine word for wisdom. How many of you have seen The Shack or read the book The Shack? Most of you will understand in there they use that similar analogy. And what they were doing was trying to shift the church on its axis. And everyone was like, what's going on? You see, Sophia was proclaimed to be the place in us where the entire universe resides. They believed self-discovery was the new platform for divine revelation. Yikes. But we understand that to happen nowadays with certain things, eh? We, we, we can actually get to that point ourselves in, a, in quite a hurry when we want something that God doesn't want for us. And the reason I share this kind of modern example, and there's others, Tony Campolo, if you know him, he had one in 1984. We still face the same issues that John's early church faced as we, as we wrestle with who Jesus is. That's why it's important for us to engage, although it's hard, with some theological aspects of our faith. For us to hold on to these things. This is why a couple of weeks ago, Michaela gave us the Apostles' Creed. That Apostles' Creed was written 300 AD. Okay? It's still with us today. Why? Because it's important. It's an anchor to our faith and understanding of who Jesus is and what he does. I'm going to move to my last one because we're running out of time. But the blood and the water, I want to speak to that just briefly as we go. When Jesus was pierced in his side, what came out? Water and blood. When Jesus started his ministry, what happened? He was baptized and the Father spoke. And he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was standing, uh, sitting in the, in the garden of Gethsemane, bleeding because he was so in anguish, who spoke to him? The Father. You see, these pieces of information, they're, they're not just little tidbits that John chucks in there. They're this beautiful spirograph preacher which is growing in our understanding. So when we come to the climax of the entire letter, I think, these two verses in chapter 5. And Pastor Craig this morning opened with uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 where he talked about the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. Tonight I want to give you the hope of being born again into eternal life. It says these words. And this is the testimony God has given us. Eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, what he's talking about is being born again for eternal life. He's talking about being in Christ God has called us into his life. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. They are born again. And some of us go, that's a bit of a clunky understanding. No, it's a chance to start afresh. You were born into a new family, like you woke up and you were the prince of England. All the rights, all the all the authority, all the finances, all of the same space that they occupy, you occupy as God's children. You are born again for a reason. God has given us the life of the age to come, and this life is in His Son. Now, we've been getting these beautiful pictures, okay? I'm talking about Spirograph. That there that idea of light and life, that's what we've called to live here and now. You see, when, when he talks about being a part of a world where you are born again into eternal life, Tim Keller says these words. He says, you have been born again to see the kingdom. Uh, to see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Why? Because you can't be a prince in a kingdom unless you're born into it. You don't get the same rights, you don't get the same inheritance unless you were born into it. I love that picture. Anyone else who has the son has life. But I wanna say this, what is the life that he's talking about? Eternal life isn't just future, it's present. Eternal life is both present and future. The things that John's been talking about through this whole series is the eternal life that God is calling us into here and now as his people, as those born into his kingdom, as those who have the right and inheritance of the king. He's calling us to live a life of love, a life of faith, a life of truth here and now, to bring transformation here and now within your community, within your family. He's called you to eternal life. So I want to ask you this. Do you have the son? <laughs> because if you don't have the son, you don't have eternal life. When, Paul, when, when John's talking about you, you can't hate a brother and sister and love God, do you have the son? That's what he's saying. If you, if you talk about love in such a way, do you have the son? You see, tonight, this is where I want to I close. Do you have the Son? No other God, no other power, no other being in all the world loves like this, gives like this, dies like this for you. I invite the band to to join me. Tonight, I want to give us some space um, to respond. And as they lead us in the last song, which is Good, Good Father, Uh, I want to encourage you to change your posture. If you are a son or a daughter of the Most High King, I want you to respond in whatever way you desire, but I encourage you to change your posture. Maybe it's kneeling. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's just standing. Maybe it's walking out the door. I don't know. But I want to encourage you to respond. And maybe tonight you, you don't know the sun, Maybe this is news to you. Maybe this is uncomfortable for you. You don't need the magic prayers of the pastor. There's people standing around you who know God, who know Jesus, who are sons and daughters of the Most High King, who live in the inheritance, who know how to love and life and bring truth. And so I want to encourage you, if you're you're with someone or you've come alone, maybe you want prayer, there are pastors who'd love to pray with you, but there is a hundred or so people in this room would love to pray with you as well. And so as the team lead us, I encourage you, change your posture and ask yourself, do you truly have the Son? Thanks, team.